operating via remote. I'm Jeff Custer. This This is African News Tonight on The Voice of America. Hello and welcome to VOA Africa. Thank you for joining us. I'm Mike Hove. Poland is seeing an influx of refugees at their borders. As more people flee the war in Ukraine, their journeys are tough, but they remain resilient as they seek refuge and leave behind their homes and often some family members. Mariam Gawe and Karina Chowdhury spoke to one such family. Since Russia's invasion of Ukraine, Poland has received more than 2 million refugees. At the Polish border in the town of Przemysl, around 50,000 refugees are arriving each day. Amongst them was Lilia Achenpon and her two daughters. They entered through Medica, one of the main border crossing points between Poland and Ukraine. Achenpon's daughter Esther, who was HR manager in Kiev, says the journey was not easy. Uh, I'm here with my family. This is my mother, uh, Lilia, and my sister, Jasmine. Uh, it is really terrible and really hard to understand, and I feel so tired and um, exhausted, yeah. At the camp in Medica, they grab a quick bite before they board the bus to continue their journey, this time to Germany. We have uh, some friends in Germany, and my husband gave us this uh, phones telephone number, so we will call them if they will take us. <laughs> Achenpon met her husband, Samson, who is Ghanaian, while he was studying in Ukraine. We have four children, and uh, he loved uh, Ukraine, and he decided to stay, not to leave. What does he do there? Uh, he is a pastor of the church. Esther shows a picture of her father and brothers from a time when life seemed much simpler. For Achenpon, leaving her husband, her son, in Ukraine was not easy on her or her daughters. She says even though her sons do not look like Ukrainian citizens, they were born there, so they have to fight. I feel like lonely and <laughs> like separated because they are Ukrainians. So according to the law and for this age group, they have to stay in Ukraine. They can't leave. They have to go and put war for our country. With their lives now packed into three suitcases and backpacks, Lilia Chengpon and her daughters continue to make their journey toward Germany in the hopes of reuniting with the rest of their family soon. We don't know what is going to happen with them. If they will stay, we believe that uh, God will protect them. And we believe that hopefully when the war uh, finishes, we will come home because we want to live on our country, yeah, to, to support our country. Meanwhile, humanitarian organizations such as UNHCR and Red Cross have been present at the border to provide food, transportation and other services for the refugees. Dr. Rami al Nasser, CEO of the Red Crescent from Cairo, Egypt, explains how his organization is helping. We established a relief center, a humanitarian aid, to support Egyptian citizens and students to return back to Egypt. And also, uh, we welcome anyone asking for help. We provide uh, several services, including psychosocial support, first aid, some medication, and also some uh, food and non-food items. Also, facilitating uh, some of uh, uh, small uh, apartments or hotels 
okay, for a transient period until uh, Egyptian people return back to Cairo. Dr. Al Nasser says since their team arrived, there has been cooperation amongst everyone working at the border. From Madika, this is Mary Mgawe, VOA News, Poland. In Burkina Faso, suspected Islamic extremists killed at least a dozen soldiers and wounded eight others Sunday. The army says a number of militants were also killed in the attack in eastern Guma province. The military has been carrying out large-scale operations there and in neighboring areas of Pama, Majwari and Foturi. The Associated Press quotes an army statement saying the area where the ambush took place has now been secured. The military ousted President Roch Kabori in January said he had failed to contain growing jihadi violence by groups linked to al-Qaeda and the Islamic State. Violence by Islamic militants has killed thousands and displaced more than two million people. The United Nations Children's Fund says access to safer water supplies could improve on the African continent if governments invested more in the water sector. As the world celebrates World Water Day on Tuesday, the United Nations seeks to focus attention on the global water crisis and raise awareness about the 2.2 billion people living without access to safe water. Mavis Okiere in the Ashanti region of Ghana has more. In 2001, about 142 million people across eastern and southern Africa drank unsafe water. The United Nations says this must change if the region is to achieve the sustainable development goal of ensuring safe water and sanitation for all by the year 2030. This year's World Water Day team, Groundwater, making the invisible visible is key to those goals. Dr. Sam Godfrey is the regional advisor for water supply and sanitation for UNICEF's regional office in eastern and southern Africa. He says groundwater is the main source of water for about 70% of Africa's population. He says it has the advantage of being safer and cleaner than water from rivers and lakes. He says, however, groundwater must be protected because some human activities such as contamination from pit latrines and sewage lines could leach into groundwater. Godfrey says when that happens, groundwater needs to be treated before it is distributed to households for drinking. So what we really need to be looking at are, are two things. We, we need to firstly be investing in investigations, and, you know, actual scientific investigations to locate where these uh, sustainable groundwater sources are at a, at a deeper level. And secondly, we need to, to be focusing on uh, increased investments to make sure that we have enough investments to be able to extract that water and then potentially distribute it from you know, one area of a country to another area so that there's some critical use of, of, of that particular groundwater. He says to increase the use of groundwater, countries need to identify sources that are sustainable and resilient to climate shocks. He says in eastern and southern Africa region, there have been a six-fold increase in the number of droughts and floods in the past few decades, which cuts the amount of water that is available in the ground. Godfrey says currently the droughts from Somalia through Ethiopia, Eritrea and northern Kenya is becoming alarming. And the pattern is, is quite similar. This is a drought that comes off the back of a failure of three rains. And so it means that all of the, the shallow rainwater-fed sources for water have dried up and, and not been replenished. 
And so those include, of course, your hand dug wells or clear cats, which are sort of rainwater harvesting systems. And so the only solution uh, really for those particular uh, communities is then to, to be looking at more climate-resilient water systems um, that will be able to supply water and withstand you know, failed rains, which unfortunately with, with climate change is becoming more of a reality. So actually, you know, water sources that can withstand those kind of shocks on a, on a more resilient basis than the, the current supplies that we have. He says in 2001, UNICEF and the World Bank stated which countries in eastern and southern Africa would meet the sustainable development goal of access to safe water. He says few countries are on track to meet the 2030 targets. There needs to be an acceleration, the SDG acceleration plan, to really try to, to get more investments into the water and sanitation sector between now and 2030. Within Eastern and Southern Africa, the, the countries which um, are making greater progress include uh, Botswana and uh, Rwanda, where we feel with uh, an increased push, acceleration of the investment, there could be a potential for uh, reaching the, the SDG targets. Godfrey says UNICEF has developed strong partnerships with a number of partners in the Horn of Africa, which enables them to prioritize very marginalized communities and develop water supply systems and sanitation services for them. Reporting for VOA, this is Mary Zotri in Jaso, in the Ashanti region of Ghana. A new report by Human Rights Watch says police, military and security officials in Uganda have detained hundreds of government critics, opposition figures and peaceful protesters, often in makeshift detention centers in unauthorized locations. Scores of people interviewed by the Human Rights Watch between 2019 and 2021 say they were subjected to enforced disappearances, arbitrary arrests, illegal detention, torture and other abusive treatment. Former detainees say they were denied access to lawyers and accused of assassination attempts against government officials spying or working to oust President Yoweri Museveni. Reuters cited a military spokesman as saying torture is not tolerated. Ugandan law prohibits arbitrary detention, enforced disappearances and torture. It also holds liable any public officers who commit human rights violations, though Human Rights Watch says no one has been convicted under these laws. In South Africa... There's an increasing support for the view that so-called Western forces, specifically NATO member countries and the United States, are responsible for the war in Ukraine. Political analysts say the stance stems partly from the long-held resentment of the West for colonial oppression of Africans. Many South Africans also feel major powers like the U.S. didn't do enough to end apartheid, while Moscow provided liberation movements with funding, weapons and military training. Darren Taylor has more. The African National Congress administration insists it's neutral in the ongoing conflict in Eastern Europe. Yet the ANC continues to hold regular briefings with Russian representatives in Pretoria while refusing to meet with Ukrainian diplomats. President Cyril Ramaphosa has told Parliament several factors caused the war. The war could have been avoided if NATO had heeded the warnings from amongst its own leaders and officials over the years that its eastward expansion would lead to greater, not less, instability in the region. This was also based on agreements that had been arrived at in the past amongst various parties. 
We cannot, however, condone the use of force or violation of international law. Ramaphosa says he'll continue pushing for peace-building measures to end the crisis. During a University of Johannesburg webinar broadcast live on national TV, Russia's ambassador in Pretoria, Ilya Rogachev, said Moscow had warned NATO for more than two decades to stop moving closer to its borders. But there was wave after wave of NATO expansion, despite the promise to Soviet leadership not to expand the bloc eastwards that was given in 1990 and 91. We know that some NATO military bases installations uh, were supposed to appear in Ukraine soon. Rogachev said the U.S. government and NATO contemptuously rejected Russia's diplomatic efforts to solve the issue. Moscow was obliged to act, said the ambassador, when the Ukrainian government, supported by Washington, began working on biological weapons in secret laboratories near Russian territory. The Ukrainian and U.S. governments deny this. Rogachev said when Kyiv began to move toward acquiring nuclear weapons, President Vladimir Putin was obliged to defend Russia. Nuclear weapons and biological weapons in the hands of neo-Nazis and radical nationalists is a very, very dangerous thing to the world. There's no evidence that Ukraine's political leadership is under the influence of neo-Nazis and radical nationalists. Ramaphosa says it's time for the insults and accusations to stop and for serious talks to begin to end the war. What is happening out there is undesirable. It is not what should be happening between nations. We would prefer and we insist that there should be mediation, there should be dialogue and there should be negotiation. But many in South Africa regard Ramaphosa's stance as support for Putin's invasion and pro-Moscow speeches, such as one yesterday by the leader of the Economic Freedom Fighters Party, Julius Malema, are increasingly common. We are here to say to NATO, we are here to say to America, we are not with you, we are with Russia. And today, we want to say to Russia, thank you for being there when it was not fashionable to be there. Political analysts point out that Ukraine was part of the Soviet Union when Moscow supported the struggle against apartheid. Many former ANC fighters have said they received military training in what's now Ukraine. For VOA News, I'm Darren Taylor in Johannesburg. Escalating violence by unidentified armed groups in northern Mozambique's oil-rich Cabo Delgado province has sent tens of thousands of people fleeing for their lives since the start of the year. Lisa Schlein reports for VOA from Geneva. Nearly one year ago, on March 24th, a jihadist group launched major attacks in the Palma district of Cabo Delgado, causing massive displacement throughout the region. The UN Refugee Agency expressed alarm Tuesday at the resurgence of similar attacks by non-state armed groups, 
which have displaced around 30,000 people between January and mid-March. UNHCR spokesman Boris Cheshyakov says some 24,000 people displaced within Nangade district need urgent humanitarian aid and protection. He says another 5,000 people also have fled for safety to neighboring Mueda, a remote area bordering Tanzania. Those fleeing violence suffered and witnessed atrocities, including killings, the decapitation and dismemberment of bodies, sexual violence, kidnappings, forced recruitment by armed groups, and torture. The threat of renewed violence means the number of people arriving in Weta continues to increase. Cheshikov says hundreds of families reportedly still are on the move. He says the humanitarian needs of the thousands of recently displaced people are huge. They are in addition to the ongoing assistance required by more than 735,000 people who have fled their homes since the conflict in Cabo Delgado started in October 2017. He says the UNHCR and partners are providing shelter materials and household items to vulnerable families. We are assessing the protection risks and supporting authorities to manage the sites which are hosting the displaced. Major gaps remain, however, especially in providing mental health and psychosocial support to unaccompanied and separated children, for instance, but also to people living with disabilities, pregnant women and older people. One of his biggest worries, he says, is the lack of resources. He notes the UNHCR has received only 11% of the $36.7 million required to deliver life-saving assistance to these hundreds of thousands of destitute people. Lisa Schlein for VOA News, Geneva. Sudanese protesters continue to march in the capital Khartoum and other cities amid mounting anger over the October military coup and soaring electricity, fuel and bread prices in its wake. The protest movement has gained fresh momentum as citizens begin feeling the crunch of such steep hikes in prices while Sudan's currency has lost a quarter of its value. Cameron Hudson, a senior fellow of the Atlantic Council's Africa Center, discusses with VOA senior analyst Mohamed Al-Shanawi whether the protest movement can pressure the coup leaders while world attention is focused on the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Well, I think it's a question of what they're intending to pressure the coup leaders to do. The coup leaders seem to be taking every effort to consolidate their hold on power internally and to create new uh, alliances, both in the political, security, and financial space with external partners. And so if the coup authorities are able to get a lifeline from external powers, which they've been trying to do from Russia, from UAE and others, then I think it will make it all the more difficult for Sudan's protest movement to put pressure on them. It will require, I think, a Western coalition coming in to counterbalance any kind of financial or security assistance that might come from uh, the Gulf or from Russia. And as you rightly say, uh, the West is largely preoccupied right now with unfolding events in the Ukraine. Billions of dollars in foreign aid were suspended by Western countries and international financing institutions after the October 25 coup and military commanders have yet to appoint a prime minister to tackle the economic crisis. What's your take on that? 
Well, I think that, you know, the military leaders have suffered no individual consequences for their actions, either for the October 25th coup or for the dozens and dozens of uh, innocent protesters who they have killed since that time. And I think part of the challenge here is unless and until individual leaders within the Sudan Armed Forces or the Rapid Security Forces begin to face pressure on themselves and their families, then they will be essentially able to avoid the worst consequences. So even the sanctions that were announced today by the United States on the uh, Central Reserve Police target an institution, but no individual leader. So even there, I think the sanction will be diffuse and, and hardly felt by anyone responsible for the atrocities thus far. A UN World Food Programs official said that almost half of Sudan's population was facing acute hunger, double the estimate of last year. While Save the Children organization said Sudan is in a particularly vulnerable position because 86% of its wheat imports is coming from Russia and Ukraine combined. What's the way out to avoid having a famine in Sudan? Well, I think one thing that we have to think about is how can the Western donor community deliver the humanitarian assistance directly to the Sudanese people in a way that does not pass through government hands, in a way that the military does not benefit. I think the challenge is that the military has so embedded itself into the fabric of economic life, from operating the port to trucking, to the distribution of food, to the sale of bread, they have implanted themselves across every part of the value chain in Sudan's economy. And so when we we talk about trying to deliver assistance, not just to uh, rural communities, which we have been doing for many years, but to urban communities who are going to face acute hunger needs like we've not seen in recent years, I think we have to start thinking very creatively about how we can deliver the assistance that so many Sudanese need without it going through military hands, touching military corporations, and allowing the military to continue to benefit from international assistance. That was Cameron Hudson, a senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Africa Center, speaking with VOA senior analyst Mohammed Alshnawi. And that wraps up this edition of African News Tonight. I'm Mike Hove in Washington, D.C. For all the latest developments on the continent 24-7, visit our website at voanews.com. And thank you again for tuning in and choosing the voice of America. Hi, I'm Kim Lewis. Join me and a panel of journalists as we discuss the top stories of the week, including U.S. President Joe Biden warned of the potential for Russia to carry out cyber attacks against U.S. interests or deploy biological or chemical weapons in Ukraine as Russia's Ukrainian invasion nears the one-month point. Join us for Issues in the News this Saturday and Sunday on The Voice of America. On the next Straight Talk Africa, we'll talk with African students who have returned home from Ukraine. What attracted so many of them to universities in the Eastern European country? And we'll speak with the former president of Mauritius about reversing the continent's so-called brain drain. Be sure to join me, Heidi Adams, on the next Straight Talk Africa, this Wednesday at 1830 UTC. 
Hello, I'm Carol Castiel. Next up, an update on Moscow's invasion of Ukraine. Despite the humanitarian and economic devastation wrought by Russian President Vladimir Putin, this geopolitical earthquake has unified the United States, the European Union, NATO, and other Western allies. Distinguished experts analyze the impact of the sanctions and much more. That's Encounter this Saturday and Sunday on The Voice of America.